Welcome back to the Opiango Line as we head into part two of Dear Queen Elizabeth. We're about to rejoin Arthur Milnes, a Canadian raconteur extraordinaire at his home in Kingston, Ontario, just a stone's throw from the Sir John A. Macdonald Parkway. Well, I worked on uh, Parliament Hill for uh, you know nine or ten months as a journalist, and then right in the middle of it, or right at the end of that, um, a friend of mine from journalism school had, uh, um, she was working as a reporter in the Northwest Territories for Northern News Services, and she called me one day and said that uh, they needed somebody for four months or something like that. And for me, the North had always, uh, uh, through my father, had always fascinated me because dad was quite inspired by John Diefenbaker and the uh, um, you know, uh, the northern vision, roads to resources, and Dad used to talk about deep. So I, I guess I always had this uh, interest in the back of my head about the north. And I was single. The pay in Ottawa was lousy. Uh, I didn't like the job. So, uh, yeah. So I got on a plane and uh, went to the Northwest Territories for a few months, uh, based in Yellowknife. And uh, I found it fascinating. Uh, just fascinating. The company was called uh, Northern News Services and the Yellowknife paper was called the Yellowknifer and then they had a pan-territorial uh, uh, newspaper each week uh, called News North. So um, I spent all my time in, uh, in Yellowknife but it was fascinating to read in the paper every week stories from places like Cambridge Bay or, or Fort Simpson or Iqaluit and all these places and then uh, for me the coolest thing was um, the newspaper got a, uh, a tip one day that former President George Bush would be coming through uh, Yellowknife Airport. Uh, I found out later quite interestingly that the people who gave us the tip were the RCMP. <laughs> so anyway so I was just thrilled right and uh, I went out there, I was on my day off, and uh, the place was buzzing with, you know, people with things in their ears and stuff, so definitely I knew the rumor was true, and then all of a sudden, there was George Herbert Walker Bush standing in front of me, and uh, I had never met a president, so it was just incredible, and then my other favorite part of the story is, um, I didn't trust myself with the camera, and it was a U.S. president, so I was getting a picture of me with a president. So my friend Cooper was an editor, and he came out on his day off to man the camera. And Cooper and I used to fish together up there, and that's why uh, President Bush was fishing. Uh, he went every August on a fishing tour to what is now Nunavut, so that's why he was at the airport. Yeah, so after Cooper took pictures of the president, uh, I was standing there probably uh, with my mouth open, not not being able to say much because uh, I was standing with a U.S. president uh, which was kind of like a dream come true and then my friend Cooper, I'll never forget, he walked up and he said, Mr. President, here's a leader for a leader and he handed him a big pike leader <laughs> and Bush was like, oh thank you <laughs> and I had, I had ahead of time written a column uh, in anticipation that I might meet George Bush I didn't write the column because it was a great work of journalism. I wrote it because if I got to the president, I wanted him to sign it for me. So I presented one copy to the president, and I said, Mr. President, I, I wrote this column about you. And I said, would you mind signing a copy for me? And he said, of course. And I said, can you sign it to Arthur, my favorite journalist? And he looked at me and he said, no. And then he scrawled it on it, and, and I still have it on my wall today. And it uh, it said, to art, I enjoyed it. And it was called, uh, uh, the, the headline was George and Me. As it turned out, quite a interesting little seed I planted. Because um, uh, two years later, they offered me a job uh, full-time, and I was married now. Uh, but I had to spend a year at the mighty Daycho Drum in Fort Simpson, circulation 800. And my wife, I was married now, and my wife and I would actually live at the paper. 
and some days we sold ads as well. We had to deliver it, and uh, Simpson was uh, eight or nine hundred people uh, at that time. But uh, I'd only been there a month, and once again I got a phone call from a, a friend in Yellowknife who said that uh, President Bush was once again at uh, Yellowknife Airport for his fishing trip. So this time I wanted something more substantial. So I figured to myself, one thing US pres ex-US presidents, when their opponents are in power, pretty much don't want to get dragged into current stuff, you know. Uh, uh, sometimes they do, but not too often. And... Um, so I knew if I asked the president's office for an interview, the answer would likely be no. So then I thought to myself, well, why don't I ask him to write a fishing column about fishing in Canada's Arctic uh, exclusively for my paper? So I typed out a letter, and I remember writing, uh, I, I told the president that uh, my boss was too cheap, so there would be no freelance budget but I would send him a lure and a, a Northern News Service baseball hat. So I faxed it, you know, down to Houston to his office and didn't hear anything. And then probably two weeks later, uh, maybe a month, I can't remember, my wife and I were eating dinner. As I said, we lived at the newspaper and uh, I heard the fax machine going off, and I went down to the newspaper office down on the ba uh, down on the main floor, and uh, there was a fax pumping out from Kennebunkport, Maine, and uh, it was a fishing column, and it was five pages, and it was full of typos, and uh, as I uh, uh, learned later, as I got to know the president, uh, he was a two-finger typist, and there were spelling mistakes, and it was just beautiful. And it was a fishing column about fishing in Arctic Canada. And uh, I remember his ending with a flourish. He, he typed, submitted by this most enthusiastic amateur to whom Canada has given such joy. And uh, he uh, wrote about what, what flies worked for him. Uh, he uh, described uh, uh, the Arctic char he had caught. He described how his grandson had fought one for 45 minutes and lost it. And uh, my other favorite line was, uh, he said that, I can still quote it today, he said, I know the day Cho drum is not the New York Times, but I figured unlike New York Times readers, day Cho drum readers actually know how to fish. So I was hesitant, right? So he, he knew how to play to a hometown crowd, right? So um, on the spot, I, uh, I picked up the phone and I phoned the number on the top of the fax, right? And this voice answered and said, Bush residence, right? Or what, something like that. And I said, ah, it's uh, Arthur Milne's calling. And then the voice immediately cut me off and said, oh, the editor in the Arctic. I said, yeah. She says, oh, I'll put you right through the president. So the President Bush came on and... Uh, he grilled me a little bit. Uh, he, he said he'd been quite worried that, you know, he would feel, uh, or people would feel he was, uh, you know, being insulting, you know, sending a fishing column to native people and stuff who've been fishing a thousand years up in the Arctic and all that. And I said, you know, Mr. President, I think it's going to go over okay. <laughs> right? So um, I said I would call him again after the column came out. And uh, so a few days, maybe a week later, uh, the uh, column came out, and here's my favorite part. Uh, anybody who understands community journalism, so we exclu exclusively had a uh, fishing column by an American president in an 800 circulation uh, newspaper, and my boss declared that wasn't the lead story. There had been a new mayor or chief elected or something, so President Bush um, didn't make the front page. Right, so he was buried. He was inside. <laughs> so, so that led to, for me, um, uh, I started. That was in September. His column came out, and every Christmas I uh, started to uh, send him a lure, or a fishing fly, and uh, in turn, he would write me back these handwritten letters describing 
every year any uh, any Canadian fishing he had done, and uh, uh, that it actually became a Christmas thing for Allison and I. Uh, she would say, you know, two weeks before Christmas, have you bought the president's gift yet? And uh, I would always go find something. Uh, my favorite was one time in a little uh, local <clears throat> convenience store, one non-chain, one of those, you know, really personalized stores. Uh, I saw a, a big fishing lure and uh, I bought it. And that was the Christmas present for the president. And I mailed it down and then uh, this handwritten letter came back. And also what I still find fascinating is President Bush would often hand address his own envelopes. <laughs> so so anyway, so then the letter came back and, and it said, Dear Arthur, thank you so much for the Hey Bay Bandit. <laughs> and then uh, some other things. And uh, uh, so yeah, so um, that... Um, my wife, uh, my wife and I, probably seven or eight years after that, uh, by surprise, uh, due to airline ticket prices, found ourselves in Houston. Well, there's only one guy I know in Houston. <laughs> I really didn't know him, and that was George Herbert Walker Bush. So I uh, let his office know uh, I would be in Houston, and we were only there one day. And sure enough. Uh, the phone rang about 7.30 in the morning, and uh, George Bush had us over for coffee. <laughs> and uh, all we talked about was fishing. Never once uh, um, ha did I ever write him or talk to him about politics. I actually couldn't care less. Everybody else can ask George Bush about politics. He's been asked to, you know, he's passed away now, but throughout his life he's been asked 4,000 times. Uh, about any ish, political issue of the day, and I frankly didn't need to re-read re with my byline on it some regurgitated story that other press had uh, answered uh, or had written. I was just more interested in George Bush the fisherman. So I, I've always been interested uh, in U.S. presidents, and uh, when I worked in Pembroke, uh, I was reminded of the time that uh, uh, in the early 1950s, the uh, nuclear facilities uh, Canada's uh, nuclear program was headquartered at Chalk River, Ontario. And I found it fascinating that when they had that nuclear accident in the early 50s, the uh, American government uh, wanted to, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, be part of a cleanup process because no North Americans had never dealt with a nuclear accident before. So the U.S. Navy uh, sent up a small team, I think 17 or 18 uh, soldiers, or, or um, seamen uh, because they they were working on the uh, uh, US uh, submarine nuclear program based in uh, Schenectady New York that's where the reactor was being built and the leader uh, of the uh, cleanup team on the American side was a young uh, lieutenant from Georgia and his name was lieutenant Jimmy Carter and um, I was fascinated by that and I read everything I could on President Carter's involvement in the uh, Chalk River, Ontario incident, and there was almost nothing, like very little written about it. So I, um, obviously, me being me, I wrote to President Carter and said I want an exclusive where I would only talk about uh, Chalk, the Chalk River incident uh, and nothing else for the Pembroke Observer. And uh, um, I got a reject letter. <laughs> but uh, uh, what I've learned over the years is you just never know till you ask. So reject letters didn't really upset me uh, that much. And Carter r remained quite a uh, interest of mine. And um, eventually I read in the paper one day that he teach, teaches Sunday school um, every Sunday and it's open to the public. And I just couldn't resist. So I flew down to Georgia, drove to Plains, Georgia, and uh, had the incredible experience of sitting in a Baptist church listening to a former president of the United States give a sermon. And, uh, you know, back then the, the president would uh, uh, meet with everybody who came to his sermon and stuff. And then I went back the next year. This time I asked him uh, for an interview, and he said, about what? And I said, Chalk River. <laughs> and he, he, his eyes lit right up, and... Um, he immediately sat down with me, and uh, um, boy, did Jimmy Carter quite enjoy talking about uh, his work as a young uh, 
uh, nuclear officer uh, uh, dealing with a very serious situation near Pembroke. So, so it was quite fascinating. And over the years, I don't want to exaggerate it too much, but uh, in a strange way, we became friends. And um, one of the biggest thrills, honors of my life, if you want to know the truth, I did a, um, one of my books. I um, uh, prepared about President and Mrs. Carter because they were my heroes, and uh, Queen's University published it. And President Carter wrote the foreword, but he also personally launched my book in um, plain storage at his own historic site. So that was quite an honor, an incredible event. And then because of my book, the university here, here at, uh, in Kingston decided to give the president, Mrs. Carter, an honorary degree. And um, the university asked if I would intercede and uh, tell the, uh, or ask the Carters privately if they would accept this. And they said, yes. The president, Mrs. Carter, said yes. So I said, well, Mr. President, you guys want to just stay with us when you're here? <laughs> and uh, uh, the president said, oh, yes, thank you. Because if you learn anything about uh, public life is the brutality of living in hotels. It's awful. So, so it was in 2012. Uh, my wife and I had a U.S. president and his wife stay in our house <laughs> along with the Secret Service. Over the years, uh, Alice and I have been quite lucky as well, is that uh, years ago, about 15 years ago, I came up with this idea that, uh, that if I could, I would invite every Canadian prime minister or former prime minister to my garden to plant a tree. Uh, so uh, those trees would be plaqued. And probably the uh, uh, seven Canadian prime ministers have come to my house and... Uh, have planted trees that we proudly plaque, uh, and each plaque reads the exact same way, so there's no partisanship. It, it says, this tree was, was planted, insert date, insert prime minister's uh, name. So nobody gets anything special. Uh, you just get the same plaque. If you haven't been a prime minister, you only get a shrub. So a couple of premiers, the, the, we have shrubs planted by premiers. Uh, Premier of Quebec, uh, Mr. Charest, he came and planted a shrub and uh, uh, a few other premiers have done that. But probably the, the uh, highlight of our tree program is uh, the two president, uh, or the trees that anchor our garden that were planted by the 39th president of the United States and his first lady, uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. And they brought up um, a bucket of red Georgia clay. So that's what they use for their ceremonial uh, scoops. And uh, Carter, uh, President Carter was quite funny. When they, they finished the tree planting, now he's probably 88 at this time or something like that, but you have to remember he's a farmer. And uh, uh, there was still red Georgia clay left in the wheelbarrow. And President Carter said, you don't waste Georgia soil. And he picked up the, uh, picked up the whole wheel, wheelbarrow <laughs> and poured the rest of the... Uh, rest of the uh, red clay around his tree. <laughs> oh, the first tree we had planted but was, uh, was by John Turner. And uh, I was picking him up. Uh, another thing I try to do is whenever I hear a prime minister is coming to Kingston, I phone them an offer and ask if they need me to pick them up. Um, the idea of a former Canadian prime minister coming to my town and having to hail a cab is something I find offensive. So over the years, I picked a few of them up. And uh, Mr. Turner and I became friends years ago, and uh, it became an annual event where uh, uh, each June he came for board meetings of Empire Life, and I would pick him up the train, and then I would write about it in the paper. And one year, uh, early in June, one of the local car rental companies called me and said, have you picked up Mr. Turner this year? And I said, no, I haven't. <laughs> and they said, okay, well, we'll donate a bright red convertible. So so it was, uh, I, uh, uh, I went over to the car rental place and they gave me this brand new, it had 26 kilometers on it, is what I remember. Sebring, I think it was, bright red convertible. And I drove off to the VS train station in Kingston and uh, met Mr. Turner and we walked out and uh, to the uh, convertible and uh, he looked at it and he said, Arthur, you're not still working at the Whig Standard if you can drive, afford this thing. And uh, so off we went and we 
drove around town, me and a former prime minister in a convertible. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so the next year, I came up with this idea of getting them to plant trees, and uh, but I hadn't cleared it with Mr. Turner. So I went to pick him up, and I had already dug the hole, and I had already had a tree uh, ready to be planted, and I had the plaque made up. And we were driving along, and I said, Sir, before I take you uh, to your meeting, uh, can we stop by my place? And he said, uh, you know, well, what's up, Arthur? And I said, well, I was wondering if you'd uh, want to plant a tree in my garden. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, you know, plant a tree, and uh, I'll put a plaque on it, and I'd be quite honored to have a tree planted by the 17th Prime Minister in my garden. And he looked at me, and he said, okay, let's do it. So... Uh, over he came and uh, I had a bottle of scotch ready and we had a few drinks and he regaled uh, regaled my wife and I uh, with war stories from his illustrious career and then it was raining so we had a huge uh, umbrella to cover him and off we went um, and he threw his dirt uh, with the sh special shovel we have only for these occasions he threw the dirt in and then he looked at me and he said oh, I haven't done that in a long time. Let's give her another scoop. <laughs> so, so then, so I had Mr. Mar or, uh, Mr. Turner, and I knew once I got to three prime ministers that it would be a thing. So they would start doing it, right? So, a few years later, uh, Paul Martin uh, was to receive an honorary degree at Queens. So I phoned him and I said, "Well, sir." Um, um, when you're here, do you mind coming over to my house to plant a tree? And uh, he said, sure, you know, no problem. So Alice and I arranged, with Mr. Martin's permission, <clears throat> a um, small community barbecue. So probably about 30 or 40 people came along with uh, some of Allison's students. Uh, she's a primary school teacher. So they wanted those, we wanted those kids to have a rare opportunity to meet a prime minister. And then um, the Fort Henry Guard, they sent, uh, at my request, they sent an honor guard. And the fun part was uh, Mr. Martin uh, was escorted into my backyard by the Fort Henry Guard. And they proceeded in military fashion down to where Mr. Martin's tree would be planted. However, they first stopped at John Turner's tree and saluted. <laughs> so, so that was cool. And then Mr. Martin planted his tree and uh hugh siegel was here that day and and uh hugh was or uh mr siegel was a senator at that point and though a conservative he had been appointed to the senate by uh paul martin when paul martin was prime minister so mr martin threw his scoop in uh of soil and then he said why doesn't everybody here throw a scoop in as well so hugh siegel was next and hugh or senator siegel put his shovel into the dirt and then he looked up at everybody and he said, thanks to this man here, pointing at Prime Minister Martin, he said, I've been able to shovel shit in the Canadian Senate for years. Thank you, Mr. Martin. And everybody, everybody cheered. And then um, after that, uh, so I had two. Then uh, the next PM that I heard was coming to Kingston was uh, Joe Clark for a Queen's event. And I phoned him and I said, you know, I'll pick you up, and um, I picked him up at the Via station, which is very close to Sir John A. Macdonald's grave. So I picked him up, and because um, we had a lot of time before his Queen's event, I said, Mr. Clark, have you ever been to John A. Macdonald's grave? And, and Mr. Clark said, you know what, no. And I said, well, let's go, it's right over there. So it was an incredible experience for uh, a history buff like me to um, be at the first Prime Minister's grave with the 16th Prime Minister, and Mr. Clark and I just sat there for a half an hour and talked about history, talked about McDonald and his family story and things. So it was quite a special moment. So then I had Joe Clark. So I guess I'm up to Joe Clark, John Turner, and Paul Martin. So then the Carters came. So then I had a president in that, but there were still a few Prime Ministers I didn't have. So I heard Mr. Cretchan was coming to, to uh, Kingston. So I called him. And uh, he's, he said, uh, 
how, you know, what do you mean? You, you have prime ministers plant trees in your yard? And I said, yeah, and the pres former president of the United States. And he says, really? He says, okay, I'll plant a tree. But he says, I'm a special prime minister. And I said, well, yes, you were, sir. And he says, so I have a request. I won't come unless I get your front lawn. I don't want to be with the rest of them. So Mr. Cretchan's on the front lawn. <laughs> and then um, I was very privileged to be a speechwriter for Prime Minister Harper. So uh, when Prime Minister Harper was Prime Minister, uh, his uh, daughter was in a volleyball tournament here in Kingston. So uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Harper came over to our house and you know, that's pretty exciting on Johnson Street when you have the Prime Ministerial motorcade pull up. And uh, my favorite part was Mr. Harper got out of, Prime Minister Harper got out of the car holding a uh, margarine dish. And that was dirt from the uh, garden at 24 Sussex. So that's what we used for his scoop. And then uh, Kim Campbell, um, uh, she came over. And uh, she came over in the context of the 200th anniversary of the birth of Sir John A. Macdonald. That's why she was in Kingston. So for that, we got a bucket of soil from Earnscliffe in Ottawa, which was John A.'s residence. So that's what Madame Campbell used. So... And then Mr. Mulroney, I had worked on uh, his memoirs with him, and uh, he happily came over as well when he was here in Kingston. So all I'm, the only one I'm still waiting, and he's told me three times now that he will do it. Uh, if any of the listeners here have any connections to Justin Trudeau, tell him his prime ministership will not be complete until he gets to my house to plant his tree. Uh, he said he would do it, but we're tired of waiting. We have the spot all ready for him and uh, he needs to get to Kingston or he will not be a complete Prime Minister so if you're listening Prime Minister um, <clears throat> you need to get here quick so it was early 1999 and a friend of mine from Northern News Services had taken a job at the Kingston Whig Standard and I'd always been interested in the Whig you know because um, I lived, lived here in Kingston when I went to Queens and it was quite a substantial paper so out of the blue, my friend called me and he says, I hope you don't mind. I gave your name to the editor um, of the wig because we need a new reporter. So um, boom, um, Claude Skilly, uh, one of the best editors I've ever had, if not the best. Uh, Claude hired me over the phone and down I came uh, to the wig. And I was five or six years of the wig. I was the court reporter. Uh, however, when I wasn't busy in court, uh, Claude, my editor, uh, encouraged me a great deal to pursue my um, obsession, I guess, uh, with prime ministers. So um, I wrote, uh, particularly with the John A. Macdonald connection, I wrote uh, a ton of articles over the years about Macdonald, about Kingston. Um, I would visiting, uh, I often had the honor of, vis of interviewing, visiting uh, um, Prime Ministers, President, or not Presidents, Prime Ministers, Cabinet Ministers, uh, etc. And in the middle of all this, the one interview since Pembroke I had never been able to get when I was at the Kingston Week Standard was I always wanted uh, Brian Mulroney to give me an interview solely about his hero, Johnny McDonald. And it just never happened. I would write him and uh, get these rejects back and stuff like that. But I, you know, as I said before, there's nothing like a reject letter to inspire me to write you another one, right? So, uh, uh, anyway, so one night, about three weeks before my phone rang, I had actually sent my latest letter to Mr. Mulroney. And, uh, <laughs> my phone rang here at home one night. It was my mother-in-law in Toronto. And she said, Guess who we ran into in the airport tonight? I said, oh, who's that? And she said, Brian Mulroney. And all I could think was, oh, my God, what has she done? Right? And she said, don't worry, Art. We gave him shit for not talking to you. And I said, okay. I said, well, what did he uh, say in response? And she said, well, I said my son-in-law works at the Whig Standard. And he cut me off, and he said, Arthur Milnes. <laughs> and uh, uh, she said, yes, you need to talk to him. And then, then my mother-in-law said, 
And Mr. Mulroney, then he said, tell Arthur that because he had now met the in-laws, he'd talk to me. So the next day, no word of a lie, I got to the Whig Standard about quarter to nine or whatever, and there was already a message on my machine. And uh, I can quote it to this day because I'll never forget it. Uh, so I clicked on, and the voice said, Arthur Brian Mulroney. I'm calling at the behest of my new best friends, your in-laws. Let's talk. So I phoned him, and I had all these plans to just ask him questions about uh, uh, John A. McDonald and that. And I just, he was so interesting and fascinating to actually have an extensive conversation with. I forgot to ask all my questions, right? So I got off the phone and I didn't really have an interview. And then a few weeks later, he called me again. And, uh, you know, we had a nice chat, uh, all about history and nothing about politics. And then I said to him, I said, sir, can I ask you something personal? And he said, what's that, Arthur? And I said, well, um, why haven't you done your memoirs? And uh, he says, oh, well, you know, that's a difficult job for all former prime ministers. And I said, well, I think you should, you know. And he said, well, thank you, Arthur, you know. And uh, um, then we got off the phone. And again, I went, went home that night, or I was here when it happened, I can't remember. And I just went through all my books in my own library, and I wrote Mr. Mulroney a memo um, uh, telling him, or showing him, kind of arrogant on my part, but uh, describing to him what the publishing history of all of our prime ministers. The first prime minister who wrote a memoir was Sir Charles Tupper. So I uh, went through all the records and I mailed him a, uh, a memo off. And he phoned to thank me and we had a nice uh, ch uh, chat and I still hadn't written anything. <laughs> and uh, I, I just... Uh, I found it fascinating to be talking with a former Prime Minister who had made history. And um, so I just, no point in writing something, I just wanted to, uh, I was fascinated why he was calling me. And then um, I got uh, an invitation in the mail that Mr. Mulroney's portrait was being unveiled in the House of Commons. And uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons, um, who was my MP, Peter Milliken, um, was inviting me to a dinner that would be held in honor private, privately for the former Prime Minister when his portrait was put up. So uh, off my wife and I went, and uh, that night when I saw Peter uh, before the dinner started, there's maybe a hundred people at the dinner, I'm not sure, and uh, Peter said, Arthur, you won't believe this, but he's the one who asked you to be on the list. And uh, because he was having a port his portrait unveiled, it was a very important ceremony both for the country but also for a prime minister personally I went out and I bought him a present I, I bought him um, uh, the two volume what I think's uh, the best uh, next to the Maruni memoirs of course prime minister's uh, memoirs ever written was I found a first edition uh, two volume copy of Robert Borden's memoirs so at the dinner I just gave him to him I said you know here's a, a congratulations and uh, you know uh, you did an incredible public service, and uh, I think you'll enjoy reading what Robert Borden wrote about public service. And uh, you know, he was very grateful, gracious. And then about two weeks later, his secretary called me and uh, invited me to lunch with him in uh, Montreal. So down I went to Montreal, and uh, we went to a, a you know like a Rideau Club type type place, and we haven't even sat down. And Mr. Maroney looked at me and he said, "Well, Arthur, um, uh, I just wanted to." you know, to let you know that I'm starting my memoir project and I hoped you would join me as research, my researcher. <laughs> I had no idea. And I'll never forget my answer <laughs> to the 18th Prime Minister. I said, what? You can get bigger than me. And he, and he, he, he said, well, I didn't expect that answer, right? And uh, so that led to an incredible uh, five-year experience. Uh, working with a former prime minister uh, on his memoirs. And I remember uh, getting home from Montreal after that first lunch, still in awe and in a daze. And I remember my wife wasn't home, so I just sat in the basement where all my books were, and I, I looked at Borden's memoirs were there, and Diefenbaker and Pearson and Tupper and all these books uh, written by prime ministers 
And I thought, wow, um, I have to play a role in one of these. And a hundred years later, there'll be some guy sitting in their basement looking at whatever Mr. Maroney writes. And it was a very uh, humbling, at the same time, scary feeling. Right? So then off, uh, off Mr. Maroney and I went. And uh, we had never, uh, he hadn't written a memoir, I hadn't. And uh, first two years I spent uh, in his archives, which is an incredible experience. So basically I got to read every single document that a prime minister of our country received in uh, a nine-year period. So it was quite, quite incredible. I, I discovered quickly that uh, Mr. Maroney is incredibly fun. Uh, one of the funniest men I'd ever worked, uh, worked for. Uh, incredible with little gestures, uh, phoning my in-laws or my father. Uh, uh, encouraging out my wife in her studies. Uh, people in town started to uh, hear that I was working on this project. And uh, in the grade five unit then they did, uh, the kids had to write essays or pro do projects about prime ministers. And four or five times uh, uh, people came to me and said, well, you know, my son's doing a project and he's picked Brian Maroney. And is there any chance you could ask Mr. Maroney to help him? And I would pass pass on the phone number and the name of the kid to Mr. Maroney. And, you know, usually it was on weekends. And my phone would ring on the Monday with these shocked parents that Brian Maroney had called their grade five kid at home here in Kingston. So uh, uh, he's quite a remarkable man. And then uh, he, uh, what I love about him, is uh, he became fascinated in politics when he was a teenager and and he had the gumption to uh, to phone Prime Minister Diefenbaker and he would get through and so so uh, he, he you know we had a meeting in the mines I think and uh, he knew my interests and then uh, he set up incredible experiences for me um, I went to London England in 2007 on a holiday by myself and uh, it's bad enough living with Art Milnes normally, but you don't want to go, if you're my wife, you don't want to go to London, England with Art Milnes because all the political history's there. So anyway, the first day I was in the hotel, I was working for Mr. Maroney, and he called me, and he said, uh, you know, what are your plans this afternoon? And, and I got mad at him. I thought, I'm on holidays, right? So here he is going to want me to interview somebody or go look up a document and I, I was quite ticked at him and he said okay well it sounds like you're free I hope you are because at 2.15 you're having tea with Margaret Thatcher so uh, off I went and uh, uh, I had about two hours with Lady Thatcher uh, in the uh, tea room of the House of Lords and uh, uh, I wasn't interviewing her so I just what an incredible experience and uh, same thing she was funny uh, when um, uh, we first sat down, um, I said, you know, ma'am, um, it's interesting that when I flew from Canada, I was reading in the uh, newspaper on the plane that it's the 25th anniversary of the Falklands War. And she said, yes. And I said, well, you know, I couldn't believe it coming out of my mouth. I said, well, when I was in grade 12, my friend Tom Harrison and I did a project on the Falklands War for our uh, grade 12 class. And she cut me right off, and she said, <laughs> she snapped at me, and she said, what side did you come down on? And I said, yours. <laughs> and she looked at me, and she said, well, I'd expect so. <laughs> but it was quite a remarkable uh, experience to uh, get to sit and talk with this incredible world figure, whether you liked her or not, her politics, who had made history, and uh, it was incredible. I... Uh, always been interested in British Prime Ministers. Uh, in my parents' house, the uh, three most important political figures, at least that you should respect, would be the Prime Minister of Canada, the President of the United States, and the Prime Minister of the UK. And uh, so again, always had an interest there. So when I was at the Whig Standard, uh, Pierre Trudeau died. And I had spent my entire journalism career waiting for a Prime Ministerial death on my watch. <laughs> I think I was made for it. And, uh, but because of some of the other uh, work I had to do on the court beat, I didn't get to cover uh, uh, right tributes uh, upon Mr. Trudeau's death that I wanted to. So I resolved that a year on the first anniversary of his death, I would uh, write to foreign leaders who dealt with Mr. Trudeau and ask them 
a year later for their impressions of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And uh, I wrote to James Callahan of the United Kingdom and Ted Heath and uh, President Ford of the United States. And they all phoned back and they all gave me uh, interviews uh, about Pierre Trudeau. And then um, later, uh, in that same period, Tony Blair visited uh, Ottawa as Prime Minister to deliver an address to Parliament. So my MP, Peter Milliken, who was the Speaker, uh, he, uh, uh, he, he asked me if I wanted to attend uh, the speech, and of course I did. Off I went, and uh, thanks to Peter, uh, I got to meet Tony Blair and talk to him uh, briefly. And uh, that was quite a thrill. And later, um, I edited a book about of Sir Wilfrid Laurier's speeches, and some of his greatest speeches were delivered in the United Kingdom, actually. And uh, I contacted Mr. Blair on a lark, and I said, would you write a tribute essay to Sir Wilfrid Laurier for my book? And he said, yes. So uh, I'm kind of thrilled that one of my books has an essay from a, a former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So I worked with Mr. Maronito's memoirs, a bestseller, I might add, came out in 2007. And I also spent another number of months with him because he and I had uh, generated so many files for the memoirs that uh, I had to spend months to archive them properly. And um, then I was quite lucky. Um, I didn't know after that if I wanted to go back to journalism. And um, I sought the advice of Tom Axworthy, uh, who had been Mr. Trudeau's principal secretary. And he was, at that point, running the Center for the Study of Democracy at Queen's. And I didn't know Tom. Um, you know, I'd met him, but I didn't know him at all. But I, I really respected his opinion because he's, uh, above all else, Tom is a, a political historian of great reputation. So down I went to see him, and um, we had a long talk. And uh, at the end of the um, uh, talk, he offered me a job, uh, working with him on political history, raising the profile of prime ministers uh, and other leaders uh, uh, at the university and beyond. But there's only one problem with the job. He had no money. <laughs> so so we had to fundraise. And uh, so I was with Tom for, I would think, three years or so. And my life's dream was always to have one book published. And uh, thanks to Tom and a, a woman we worked with named Julie Birch, uh, my first book came out. Uh, I co-edited a collection of John John Turner's speeches, and um, I'll never forget what it's like to have a book come back from the printer and your name's on it. You know, it was quite a thing. And over over the years, uh, I was you know, like I said, I, I only dreamed of ever having one book published. And by the time uh, Tom left the Center for the Study of Democracy, uh, Democracy, I had also had uh, books published on Arthur Meehan, R. B. Bennett. John Turner, as I mentioned, and then uh, I was quite interested in U.S. presidents in the Canadian context, so um, we prepared a book on Franklin Roosevelt, his, his speeches and presidential speeches in Canada generally, um, Jimmy Carter in the Canadian context, and George Herbert Walker Bush uh, in the Canadian context. And one special thrill was my book about um, Franklin Roosevelt, which also contained speeches of uh, kind of a greatest his hits package of all presidential speeches delivered in Canada uh, on President Obama's first ever visit to Canada as president. Uh, my book was presented to him as a uh, official gift. And uh, so I always tell people the same thing. I never got to meet President Obama, but my book did. So uh, then, because of a book I did on Arthur Meehan, uh, Prime Minister Harper was there, uh, who I didn't know, uh, when the book was launched uh, on Parliament Hill. And uh, I met Stephen Harper. And I met a young member of his staff as well. And... Uh, had a wonderful chat with uh, Prime Minister Harper, and uh, uh, like me, uh, Stephen Harper is the biggest history geek to ever uh, become Prime Minister, and uh, uh, I really liked him uh, from the get-go. And uh, his assistant said, keep in touch, and whenever in your Ottawa, let me know. So, you know, he used to be in Ottawa quite a bit, so I would always call his assistant Jeremy, and then uh, Jeremy would arrange for me to be sitting down with the PM, and we would just talk history. And eventually, uh, I was offered a job as a speechwriter for the Prime Minister. And um, incredible experience. To um, There's nothing I don't think I'll ever be able to describe the feeling of walking into Longevin Block 
where the Prime Minister's offices are uh, located, uh, walking in that office in the morning knowing that you're going to be play this small role for your country and history uh, at the same time. I, it, it was just that feeling um, uh, was just incredible and uh, <clears throat> I don't think I'll ever f uh, feel it again. Uh, and um, what an honor to play this small role with the Prime Minister of your country. And all young people need to get involved so they can maybe have that same experience. But I found Mr. Harper warm, funny, uh, extremely knowledgeable. Uh, to call yourself a speechwriter to Stephen Harper is a bit of a misnomer because he had been a speechwriter himself. So I used to view myself more as a researcher. And uh, I would... Uh, dig out arcane references from history that he would sometimes like to use and uh, had incredible experiences. I, uh, um, I'll never be able to pay him back. Uh, Prime Minister Harper uh, took me to uh, Nelson Mandela's funeral because he knew I, you know, the historical impact of that event uh, would be something I would uh, uh, not only joy but I could uh, enjoy um, but uh, anyway, I'm almost speechless talking about Art Milnes of Scarborough being at Nelson Mandela's funeral. And uh, on the plane on the way over, <clears throat> that's like an 18-hour flight, uh, Mr. Harper graciously invited all living past Canadian prime ministers and governors general to join him. Uh, so it was a very much a Team Canada approach to honor Nelson Mandela. And... Um, there were three of the Prime Ministers plus Mr. Harper on the plane that night and they had a dinner for an hour or two and they allowed me to sit in. Uh, so it was just uh, four of them and me and uh, we got to, uh, they let me direct the conversation. So uh, to sit there with uh, uh, Stephen Harper, uh, the sitting Prime Minister was there and uh, Jean Chrétien uh, who had been 10 years as Prime Minister. Uh, Brian Mulroney, who had been, uh, you know, nine years as Prime Minister. And uh, Madame Campbell, uh, the first ever woman uh, Prime Minister. So all told around that little table on the plane was about 30 years of our country's uh, history. And uh, what a remarkable experience. Um, what they discussed is uh, I'll never reveal. Uh, to a person, uh, uh, you know, when I pop off, I'll, I'll uh, have the tape uh, uh, safely poked away in my archives that hopefully future, future researchers would be able to read. And um, once we got to South Africa, um, Joe Clark, who had already been in South Africa, um, he joined the official party as well. So it was remarkable to have five Canadian prime ministers uh, together, all very different, all with different politics, all, some of them history with each other, but they all came together and uh, put all that stuff aside and represented our country uh, very well. I watched uh, in person, I watched uh, other world leaders come right over to uh, the Canadian delegation and talk about the support um, Canada gave during the battle against apartheid in the 80s. And also even one world leader uh, mentioned uh, John Diefenbaker's uh, role in throwing South Africa out of, out of the Commonwealth over apartheid. So it was very, uh, in many ways, emotional time as a Canadian. Uh, there was fun. I got to meet Bono, right? and uh, that was pretty cool. He's probably the coolest guy I've ever met. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so when I was working for the Prime Minister, um, I found uh, some of the best material... Um, forget the internet, some of the best material I could find was in the uh, thousands of books in my home library that I've collected over the years that my long-suffering wife has very much allowed me to uh, take the largest room in the house to uh, put them all in. And I would, uh, over the years, I've amassed these, you know, your standard works on Canadian or, pres or prime ministerial or presidential history. But I've also found some very... Um, uh, less well-known memoirs of a certain MP from the 20s or from the 1870s and because when I, particularly when I worked at the WIG uh, one of the wonderful things upsides of being a reporter or a columnist 
is people love when you reveal your passions in a column. Mine is prime ministers and presidents, uh, but for a young journalist, I would say it could be science, could be sports, could be whatever. People like passions. So over the years, uh, people would share their own treasures from political history uh, with me. So over the years, uh, and the prime ministers, uh, uh, all eight, uh, the living prime ministers, there's eight of them now, uh, they know my interests as well. So over the years, I've just had some remarkable items have come uh, part of my uh, library now. Uh, I won't say which one, uh, but one of our prime ministers, uh, when a prime minister or party leader retires, the caucus often presents them with their House of Commons chair. So uh, one of our prime ministers presented me with their House of Commons chair. So when I sit at my computer and do my research, I'm sitting in a chair used by a prime minister in the House of Commons. Uh, it might sound funny, but actually it's very uh, inspirational. I found R.B. Bennett's letter opener once uh, at a junk store. I, I often was inspired by autographs. I remember finding a signed Mackenzie King book for $4 at the book market in Ottawa in the junk section when uh, I was a student. And I found that inspiring that, hey, I was holding a book written by a prime minister, but also signed by that long dead uh, prime minister. I felt a real connection uh, to history. Um, other things uh, that, that quite inspire me are Canada's former Ambassador to the United Nations, Derek Burney, and his wife Joan, uh, for many years collect uh, uh, Canadian antiques. And one day they showed up at my house and uh, they presented me with original 1891 John A. Macdonald campaign attack ad posters. Uh, so they're, they're something I treasure. Uh, recently I did a favor for a friend, uh, nothing important um, to me anyway, it wasn't a big thing. But um, he was quite nice, and he phoned me and said, well, I'm going to drop by. There's a gift I'd like to give you. And I said, you don't have to do that. Um, but he said, yeah, yeah, I want to. So we sat in my backyard, and he arrived with this big, huge box. And uh, when we finished our coffee, he said, okay, open it. And I opened it. It was this uh, 1854 land grant, uh, John A. McDonald selling property here in Kingston uh, to a family uh, who are still in the community, uh, their ancestors. And uh, um, he, he gave that to me. And uh, the witness on the legal document was another McDonald named John Sandfield McDonald, the first premier of Ontario. So it was quite a document, and uh, I find that quite inspirational to walk by that. And one of the things I prize most is uh, my own copy and the dedication that... Uh, Prime Minister Maroney wrote thanking me for working on his memoirs with him. Uh, th that's a book in my library I treasure, uh, you know, so much. But another thing was uh, Prime Minister Harper spoke here in Kingston on the 200th anniversary of the bicentennial of Sir John A. Macdonald. And uh, there was a big ceremony. Uh, some of the former prime ministers came, diplomats came, uh, indigenous leaders came uh, to mark this uh, incredible... Uh, anniversary for our first prime minister and uh, Prime Minister Harper delivered a um, uh, delivered a lengthy address uh, about John A. Macdonald and uh, after the ceremony he motioned me aside and said uh, you know come upstairs uh, to uh, the holding room where uh, the prime minister was and uh, he presented me with his uh, podium copy of his John A. Macdonald 200th birthday uh, uh, speech and uh, I didn't know he was going to give them to me. We were, we were sitting there with some of the other staff, and as I look back, they all had Cheshire grins on their face, but I didn't understand what was going on. And uh, Mr. Harper says, where should I sign this thing? And I said, well, sir, the, the uh, first prime, uh, tribute speech to the first prime minister by the 22nd prime minister, I said, you should be signing it front and back. And he said, oh, you're a tough customer. I had no idea. And then uh, he uh, gave me his speech and his binder, which, uh, you know, just, uh, I'll treasure that till they lay me down. I've had quite a journey, I guess. Uh, <laughs> to me, it's just how I've lived. I've never gotten rich. That's one thing I'm not good at, is making money. But uh, what an ex what a journey. Uh, meeting, uh, you know, U.S. presidents, staying in your house. And just this incredible experience of all these people who've touched and made history uh, in our time that I've actually been able to... Uh, have some contact with it's uh i still find it a very 
inspiring and powerful experience. I keep my own politics out of all this stuff. Uh, to be quite frank, I don't even know what my own politics are anymore. I, uh, having seen the job of Prime Minister uh, up close, uh, and also learning of it through Mr. Maroney's uh, private archives in the National Archives that won't be open for another 50 years or so. I, you'll never find me uh, railing personally against a, a Prime Minister. Uh, I'll disagree sometimes, uh, and I'll agree sometimes. But uh, insulting them personally, even in private conversation, I would never, uh, never do that again uh, in my career. It's a, uh, in my lifetime, I, I think, up until today, with Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, I think our country's been extremely well served uh, by our prime ministers. And again, you can agree, you can disagree with this or that policy, but thankfully still, despite how rough a sport politics is at that level, and what your family goes through, and your friends, and, and all of that. Um, we're still pretty fortunate that we have good people, like I said, right up to Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau today, who are still willing to step forward and serve. I feel quite lucky that I've been able uh, to see that. Now, if I was a 10-year-old today, <laughs> what uh, young people today don't understand, I don't think, is uh, the incredible... I actually think if you embarked on my journey today as a 10-year-old, you'd have an easier time of it because uh, in 1975 or 1985, when I started all this stuff, snail mail was common. These days, young people just fire off emails. And uh, the even in a really busy office, uh, like the Prime Minister's office, um, if a kid writes a snail mail letter, not all the time, but if a kid writes a snail mail letter, um, there's a very good chance the Prime Minister of Canada will actually be reading it because they'll, it's just simply so rare that they'll bring it up. I saw that once with Prime Minister Harper, where a grade five kid uh, wrote a project on Stephen Harper, and uh, I happened to have to go up to his office that day. And uh, I poked my head in, and he said, Arthur, you got to see this. And uh, the kid had written like a four-page or five-page project about Stephen Harper. And uh, the Prime Minister told me, yeah, this, this young man wrote a project about me. And I, I said, how did, he, uh, how did he do? And the Prime Minister said, well, he hit me pretty hard. You know, I said, oh, was he fair? And he says, oh, yeah, but boy, you know, <laughs> I deserved it. Right? So, uh, so then uh, right in front of me, the, uh, the Prime Minister wrote A++ and dated it and signed it and they mailed it back to the young student. Can you imagine the impact that would have uh, on a young person? So yeah, so my advice to young people, uh, whether you live in uh, Renfrew, Pembroke, uh, Shawville, Armprior, doesn't matter to me, uh, write those letters. And, and like I said, it's not just politics, uh, any field that you're interested in these days. Get that snail mail uh, off and who knows where it'll take it. Since it's uh, Dominion Canada Day today, I'd recommend folks, uh, you can even go online, but uh, read a couple of the speeches of a Sir Wilfrid Laurier or a John McDonald or a John Diefenbaker uh, or a Mike Pearson, Pierre Trudeau, Stephen Harper, uh, Justin Trudeau. The public words of prime ministers, particularly at a time like Canada Day, can be very inspiring. They're often in the in the Canada Day context, they're not political. Uh, they just express uh, an inspiring view of our country, which, if you think about it, in 1867, on July 1st, 1867, when John A. Macdonald and Cartier and others woke up, they were this tiny little people, four million or so. Uh, French didn't like English. English didn't like French. Irish didn't like. Um, the English, you know, uh, we were quite split, and we were all hugged along the Canada-U.S. border. And Canada, as a political unit, defies history. So I think it's worth, on our 153rd birthday, to consider that for once. We're very down on ourselves. And in fairness, there's a lot of stuff in our past we should be, um, should be um, considering uh, our treatment of Indigenous peoples, uh, for example. But still, it's in a remarkable story, our country, that uh, we've gone from three and a half, four million people hugging the U.S. border that um, Ulysses S. Grant could have taken over in an afternoon till now we're a G7 nation. Uh, it's quite a story. So, happy Dominion Day. That about does it for us here on Canada Day. 
We hope you've enjoyed, dear Queen Elizabeth, and our attempt to freshen up your July 1st celebrations with a little extraordinary storytelling from one of Canada's national treasures, Arthur Milnes. And don't forget to tell your kids or grandkids to follow up on Arthur Milne's excellent advice. The Queen of England, to say little of American presidents and Canadian prime ministers, will likely be more than happy to answer the curiosities of a 10-year-old Canadian, no matter if their letter is postmarked Scarborough or Barry's Bay. Only tell them to take the trouble to write a real letter, stuff it in a real envelope, lick a real stamp, and send it by snail mail via Canada Post. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for my producer, Barry Conway, and all of us here at the Opiango Line, Happy Canada Day. Good day, and God bless.